Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Lauren. And I'm Janine, and we are very excited to have Pr- Professor Pradeesh Madhavi joining us here today. Professor Madhavi focuses her work on gender and sexuality in the Muslim world, including sexual politics, labor migration, and human trafficking. Her most recent book is From Trafficking to Terror, and she is currently researching impacts of gendered migrations on family and love across Asia. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So we'd like to just start off by talking about this concept of the millimeter revolution um, that you've discussed in previous talks. So could you maybe explain this concept and how it relates to the idea of using the body as a battleground? Absolutely. So the millimeter revolution is kind of a catchphrase used to describe one of the youth movements, which young people that I had met termed the sexual revolution, or uh, the Persian phrase is engelabajensi. Um, and the millimeter revolution kind of refers to the wearing of the headscarf and how it is sort of inched back kind of one millimeter at a time so that it goes from kind of covering everything, um, every, every part of your hair with only the oval part of the face showing to what you see today, which is quite a lot of hair is showing. You even have um, young people wearing bandanas, very sort of loose wearing of a headscarf. And while that might be something that we might think of as trivial or we might think of it as, well, this is more pertaining to fashion, etc., it actually has a lot of political significance because the regime that's currently in power Um, It's a regime that operationalizes its power through a fabric of morality and through policing young people's bodies. And so this is a regime that, you know, if we were talking about maybe 15 years ago, if you were showing this much hair, you would have public lashings, you would go straight to jail, etc. But now everybody's walking around that way. And it signals a shift. It signals something more than just a headscarf moving back, but it signals a change in discourse, a change in um, young people's ideas about their bodies um, and it has signaled to young people that the body is a battleground where they can speak back as opposed to just having it legislated on. Can you also speak to your experience in Iran and where did you feel compelled to take the headscarf or? Well it's the law mm-hmm. so the law says that every woman has to cover every woman who's past the age of puberty mm-hmm. has to cover their hair and so of course I, I didn't want to get arrested right away. Um, of course, I would wear the headscarf while I was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, of course, I, I was wearing it. But I quickly realized that I was um, much more, you know, how you wear your headscarf uh, is uh, a statement to the world. It kind of signals where you are politically. And mm-hmm. so you have people who consider themselves maybe more conservative, maybe more devout, who wear the headscarf still quite quite tightly um, with very little hair showing. And then you have kind of people who who saw themselves as engaged in this sexual revolution or um, people who were later engaged in what was called the green, became called the green movement or the Sabs movement, um, whose headscarf was kind of moving back. And so I quickly realized that if I kind of wanted to align where I was with kind of how I was presenting myself to the world that I would have to adjust, though I was never as good at wearing my headscarf as everybody else was. So. <laughs> So something else we've heard you talk about is how in uh, Iran, access to information about sex is very limited in some communities. Um, So pornography has become a source of sexual education for some people. What ramifications does this have on the Iranian youth? 
Yeah. So, so I should be clear that, you know, sex education is mandatory for couples wanting to get married, but for couples, for people who are not yet married, or let's say couples who identify as LGBT, who will never get married, um, having sex education be tethered to marriage is a problem. Um, there's also this issue of the average age of marriage amongst young people in Tehran that I was looking at. The average age of marriage is 25 and up. But the average age of first intercourse, as my study realized, was around 14 or 15. So you have this 10-year gap between when people are engaging in high-risk behavior, sexual intercourse with multiple partners, and when they're actually being educated about it. So when people are first starting to get involved with you know, uh, sexual experimentation, um, their primary means of, of gaining education is either through word of mouth, through jokes, online, or pornography. And of course, if that's going to be a source of education, there's quite a lot of misinformation, mm -hmm. actually, um, that comes from these sources. And so, you know, I would hear things like um, people uh, uh, trying to manage their risk by engaging in sexual behavior in certain ways that actually expose them to higher risk. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a product of this misinformation. Very interesting. So um, also this kind of ties back to the millimeter revolution concept, but for many individuals, when they think of the sexual revolution, the first thing that comes to mind are perhaps images that relate to women. So the headscarf, um, the lipstick, as you were discussing in your Athenaeum talk, could you maybe elaborate a bit on the role of men in the Iranian sexual revolution? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I you know, it, it often takes men to also be engaged in some of these behaviors. No, but, um, but you know, the young men that I interviewed were very, um, very supportive. Of course, women are at the forefront because their bodies are legislated on more. But men also found ways of signaling their politics to the world through their outward comportment. So whether it was in their very fancy kind of hairstyles, which I think, um, I think it was John Stewart, it was sort of referred to, the, the, they look like peacocks, um, <laughs> um, or through accessories or through the fashion labels that they chose, which mm -hmm. were again, things that were at the time aligned with the West were seen to be somewhat, um, you know, political, mm -hmm. if you will. And so by wearing kind of more Western dress or Western labels, there, there, there was that um, although it was more you know young people trying to push for this organic you know not necessarily mirroring the West but an organic um, re a revolution um, but with with regards to men I think you know you had a lot of men um, trying to get involved in organizing certainly with the green movement trying to support women um, but again women were just the ones who were who were out front and like I said they had the most at stake they had the most to lose and the most to gain um, and so I think men necessarily took a back seat, um, which I mean, I don't think is a bad thing. <laughs> okay, thank you. So another concept we've heard you discuss is the concept of the brain drain. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that is and how it's affected the sexual revolution in Iran? Sure. Yeah. So I think we see this with other countries as well. Um, but you have the, the sort of the brain drain being that, you know, some of the the best and brightest or, you know, people who are extremely creative and they've come, they've left Iran either because they had to. So we have a lot of um, the very popular uh, musicians, Iranian musicians um, who have gained a lot of traction, who are 
incredibly brilliant who young people identify with as sort of the sound of kind of the youth. Um, people like Mohsen Namju, people like Sadabi Sohafter, Kiosk Band, like these are all musicians who um, because of their work have had to leave. And so they're now here in California, most of them. Um, and, you know, and the same, you've seen the same thing with some of the best and brightest at the, at the top universities in Iran, they're now here. Um, and, and so that's obviously going to have an effect, um, because when people see, you know, the large numbers of, of, of sort of cultural icons or people that they identify with leaving, that's actually going to affect how they view their own future in, in, in the country. And um, it's going to maybe affect their activism. Maybe it would inspire some to be more active, but I'm sure it also um, takes its toll on, on others who maybe feel frustrated and it, it affects their mental health significantly. Um, so many see kind of a correlation between the sexual revolution and Western ideals. We were wondering, could you maybe describe a little bit how uh, the youth responsible for the sexual revolution separated their movement from Western ideals and how that benefited the movement? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, young people were very adamant that this sexual revolution was something that you know, was organic, that came from them. And mm -hmm. while they were reading things like Foucault, and while they were reading you know, about sexual revolutions elsewhere, they really felt like, no, this is, this is not about us trying to emulate the West, if you will. Um, it's about us strategically using Western symbols or Western consumption, mm -hmm. strategically using that to kind of get back at the regime. But it's not about trying to imitate. Um, and and out of that came, like I said, you know, a, a generation of, of young Iranians um, who are incredibly talented fashion designers, filmmakers, musicians, poets, artists. Um, and because they've had to make and and um, disseminate their art in such a challenging atmosphere, they think that that has made their art more robust. Um, and so the same thing could probably be said about the activism is that because they've had to, this activism has taken shape um, in this very heightened setting, um, I think people might feel that their activism is more robust and that makes it different from let's say the sexual revolution that occurred in New York City in Greenwich Village here in the United States. Okay, so now we'd like to move a little bit away from the sexual revolution and ask you about what your personal definition of success is and how can you help the youth today gain that success? The, the youth in Iran? Uh, in Iran, just, in the United in, States, in, anywhere. <laughs> uh, wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, my personal definition of success, I think it would probably be um, doing something in the world that you feel good about. So being able to look back on your life and feel good about the choices you made and contributing into, contributing to the world as opposed to um, making the world a worse place. <laughs> um, so whether that's, you know, through activism or through education or whether that's through art or fashion or, or you know, making beautiful things, um, I think just trying to contribute to, to the world, as hokey as it sounds, like contribute to making the world a better place. Um, and, and, and like I said, at the end of the day, feeling good about what you accomplished that day. So how, how do you how do you empower young people to do that? I think I mean I don't think I I need to empower young Iranians. Mm -hmm. They they have empowered me and they've inspired me. Um, I've often found that in doing research for my books, it's my interlocutors who inspire me. Um, but in terms of maybe my own students, I think that's the message I try to get across in my classes or just in my interaction with students is you know, think about responsibility and, and think about living a responsible life and a life that you feel good about and, and think about 
contributing as opposed to taking away from this world. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. But thank you again for joining us, Professor Madavi. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Mm